I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, Credit shoutouts to Mark Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, Consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, violence recently erupted at Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, the third holiest site in Islam. Joining us to discuss that, as well as to explore more broadly the Israel-Palestine issue, is Richard Silverstein of Tikkun Ulam and also a contributor to Middle East Eye and Jacobin. Interestingly enough, we also end up returning to a topic that has come up on this show quite a few times before, namely the specter of the extremist Rabbi Meir Kahana in Israel today. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now on to the conversation with Richard Silverstein. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that was actually recommended to me by one of my listeners uh, in light of recent events happening at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, 
Our guest is Richard Silverstein of Tikkun Olam. How are you doing today? Fine. Thanks for having me. So if you could, maybe you could give uh, your background uh, before we get into the main topic. What's your background and how you became involved in uh, commenting and, and doing commentary on issues related to Israel and Palestine? Sure. Um, well, I'm uh, my first uh, involvement uh, with Israel was uh, going way back to 1967 when um, um, my local rabbi took us to a rally um, during the uh, Six Day War, and uh, at that time I was, you know, a teenager, and um, most American Jews were very concerned about Israel and thought that it was in danger, and so we were rallying um, to support Israel. Um, my my views changed very in a very evolutionary way over time. Um, I always was supportive of the liberal end of the political spectrum in Israel, uh, the spectrum that opposed settlements, um, that uh, wanted to have a, uh, a resolution or an agreement uh, between Israel and the Arab states and wanted to resolve the conflict with the Palestinians. Um, but I would say in the last 15 years, my views really have changed uh, radically because I adapted them to the increasing radicalization of Israel, um, the increasing militarization, the garrison state, the Israeli security state, um, sort of captured by the far right wing. Uh, there wasn't one time until around 1977 when Israel was governed by a labor government and one could conceivably say that it was a, at least a moderate government, uh, all of that's in dispute. Um, but then it basically since 1977, um, it's been controlled um, by a far right uh, government, a nationalist government, government supporting maximal territorial demands, seeking control of the West Bank and Palestinian uh, territories and exercising uh, racist, discriminatory uh, uh, suppression of Palestinians, both inside Israel who are citizens and those who are outside uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and I uh, have, uh, no, I'm no longer feel, my, feel myself to be a liberal Zionist. Um, and I don't know if I would call myself an anti-Zionist, but I would say that I'm extremely critical of the direction that Israel has taken. And I recently have started calling Israel not just an apartheid state, which is supported by Human Rights Watch and uh, the Israeli uh, human rights group, uh, B'Tselem, uh, but I, I'm star I've started to call Israel a terror state uh, because of its long history of violence, mass violence, uh, murder, and suppression of uh, Palestinian national rights. So I've become quite radical as Israel itself has become much more radical. And um, I, in the last post I wrote last night, I basically argued that um, this the the violence and desecration of the Al-Aqsa Mosque that Israel has engaged in over the past few years, including what's going on right now with uh, yesterday, one Palestinian protester uh, shot by the border police and in a coma, that this sort of desecration of holy sites uh, reminds me of Kristallnacht uh, when the Nazis basically um, um, 
basically tried to destroy all symbols of Jewish life in in Germany, burning synagogues to the ground, and um, and 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 forbidding Jews from owning stores and engaging in violence against them, and burning Jewish sacred texts. Um, this desecration, in which border police enter the mosque with batons flailing, stun grenades, and tear gas, entering into this holy site. Um, I'm sorry to say, as a Jew, I'm deeply offended by this attack on uh, a Muslim holy site, as I would be uh, by attack on any religious shrine, including uh, Jewish shrines. And we saw that uh, during the Holocaust. So um, I, I am sensitive to history. And I put up a picture on my blog post of the burning of the main synagogue in Frankfurt during Kristallnacht. And this defiling of Al-Aqsa is reminiscent of that, although they're not burning down Al-Aqsa, thank God. Um, but I think that it's possible that um, in the future, we could see that level of violence. There's a lot to unpack there, but uh, one, one thing I noticed uh, when you were talking about becoming disillusioned, even with um, liberal uh, Zionism, I, I was recently in DC to hear uh, the the journey, journalist uh, Gideon Levy uh, speak, and he basically voiced uh, the the same opinion. He said that once he was a liberal Zionist, he no longer feels that he can even describe himself as that. Uh, why have we gotten to that point where there's voices like yourself and Gideon who uh, even question liberal Zionism? Uh, because I I think if you look at the history of Zionism, uh, labor Zionism, I I I can sort of have some. Uh, sympathies with its founders, and I think it had socialist roots and whatnot. Uh, but what for you and, and people like Gideon has, got, has gone wrong? And I know you can only speak for yourself, of course. Well, I think actually, I think I can speak for many Jews, American Jews, uh, even some Israeli Jews who have become deeply disenchanted with Israel. Uh, our vision of Israel was naively taken from the Declaration of Independence from 1948, in which it declared that Israel was a Jewish and democratic state. And we naively believed that Jewish and democratic could coexist and possibly even sort of inform each other in a positive, healthy way. We believed Israel could be a humane, liberal democracy uh, with equal rights for Jews and Palest Palestinians, Jews and Muslims um, it, within the Israeli state. Um, but we say we came to realize after 1977, when the Likud came to power, that that wasn't what uh, Israel wanted. It wasn't, maybe you could say that there was a certain percentage of Israelis who still maintain that view, that there could be a two-state solution, that um, Israel should be a liberal and democratic state. But the, the, the policies of the state itself and the voters who voted for the governments that instituted these new policies show that um, the Israel state had no interest at all in being liberal uh, Zionist, yes, but not liberal at all. And uh, in fact, Israel has become more and more a reflection of Mayor Kahana. Kahanism said that democracy was a bad thing, that um, Jews must control Israel, must control all the territory. Uh, I from... think he even denied the existence of, of Palestinians. He would say they're not Palestinians. There are none. Abs there are only Arabs, but go on. Abs absolutely. And, and he favored uh, expelling the Palestinian citizens of Israel from Israel. Um, and he favored, uh, basically favored uh, dictatorship. 
uh, theocratic dictatorship, um, maybe going back to the Davidic monarchy, uh, you know, going back in the history um, and having it to be a halachic state. In other words, a theocratic state governed by Jewish law. Um, Jewish law meaning the laws of the Talmud and not, uh, you know, a modern interpretation of Jewish law, but an ancient interpretation. He would have favored destroying uh, Haram al-Sharif, the, uh, the noble sanctuary that the Muslims consider the third holiest shrine in Israel. And he would have supported uh, building the third temple, which is this messianic vision that the farthest of the far right in Israel uh, want. And this is the fuel of the current uh, violence and unrest that is happening now um, and happened last year as well during the holy month of Ramadan. Um, we can go into that later, but I, I think that liberal Zionism is dead, absolutely dead, dead as a doornail. Um, there is no more liberal Zionist, uh, Zionism. There, also, there is no more two-state solution, which is another subject we can get into. Liberal Zionism supported a two-state solution. It said that Palestinians could have their own state and exercise their rights within it, and the Israelis could have their own rights and exercise the national rights within Israel. Um, that that uh, the, the, the last... Um, Decades of Israeli governments have shown they have no support for uh, coming to a solution, a resolution with the Palestinians. They have no intent of uh, creating a Palestinian state or recognizing a Palestinian state. That leaves the Palestinians, the four million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, in limbo status. They have no citizenship. Uh, Palestine is not a state, although it's recognized by um, international bodies as such. But without Israel recognizing it as a state, it's, it can't really be a viable state because Israel controls so much of what will happen inside that uh, putative Palestinian state. So, um, you know, the two-state solution is dead, and I argue vehemently uh, and 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 um, sort of advance um, arguments, very strong arguments that um, anyone who claims they were liberal Zionist is only deceiving themselves, but they are uh, they are increasing the amount of time until there is a real one-state solution. Um, and uh, so liberal Zionism is dead, two states are dead. Um, there are many who still, still support two states, but again, supporting a solution that is not possible really, uh, really t harms the equilibrium that, that will take us eventually to the place that we need to be to really uh, resolve this conflict. So since you had mentioned Kahane, uh, I know there's going to be people that are saying, well, Kahane's party, and I, I believe it was something like, I'm going to mispronounce it, but I think it was the, the Kak party, uh, was yeah. uh, banned in Israel. So how can Kahane have any influence, people will say. But then you look at these figures like, uh, I believe, Itamar Ben-Giver, who uh, I guess he would say he he's not a Kahanist but a follower of Kahane, which I don't understand the difference, but <laughs> explain how Kahane still has an influence, even though his party was technically outlawed. Well, it was outlawed in 1988. Um, and, and the party, even though it doesn't exist, is still on the Treasury Department list of terrorist entities. Um, and I was once sued by a Kahanist uh, supporter. Um, and we went into all these technical details about um, uh, Kach being Kahanist. But uh, Kahanism hasn't died. Kach may have been, um, you know, dis, uh, you know uh, 
placed in this category of being a terrorist state. But Kahanism hasn't died. And on the contrary, Kahanism now is the state of Israel. It is the politics of Israel. The Likud party is a Kahanist party. And there are parties even farther to the right. Naftali Bennett is the leader of a party called Yamina, which means right wing. It is a Kahanist party. Uh, Bennett earlier in his career supported expelling uh, Palestinians from Israel. As the prime minister now, he takes a softer and more moderate uh, touch to things, but he is a Kahanist. And the settlers on the West Bank, even though there are maybe 20% of the Israeli population, they control every major lever of power. All the almost all the ministers are a right wing Kahanist, and even those who come from supposedly from the Labour Party, like the police minister, the one who is ordering the police to defile the Al Aqsa Mosque, a Labour Party uh, uh, member, he too is doing exactly what Mayor Kahana would do. So Mayor Kahana may have been may have died and been assassinated by a Muslim uh, in the I can't remember what year, 1992 or so. Um, but he still lives. His his views live, and they dominate Israeli society. So uh, maybe just to push back on one thing, I know you said that you you think liberal Zionism is dead, but uh, you know I look at groups like um, J Street here in the U.S. and I do think J Street is doing some valuable work. Um, that's in contrast to I think the the increasingly right wing um, APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Uh, but do you think something like J Street uh, has its limits or, or do you have criticisms of it? Um, I'm personally supportive, but I wanted to get your take. Um, absolutely. I, I oppose J Street. And I'll tell you why. In 2009, when they started, I was very hopeful about what they would be. Uh, but there were people to my left who were saying it's APAC light. And I, I dismissed that. And I went to the first a, uh, J Street conference and I organized a, uh, a panel at the conference and the panel of bloggers, including Palestinian bloggers, was attacked by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's now the managing editor of The Atlantic. Um, and um, I went and I had high hopes. J Street essentially is the, um, the Jewish wing of the liberal democratic uh, caucus in the United States. Um, it's a major supporter of all of the uh, Democratic presidents, from Obama to Biden. Um, it, it, it doesn't formulate its mission that way, um, but it calls itself um, pro-Israel, pro-peace. And that's a meaningless statement. Um, what peace are we talking about? There's no peace. There's no negotiation. There hasn't been for 10 years. Uh, neither the Israelis nor the U.S. government. Uh, well, one could say that Obama really uh, went uh, to great lengths to uh, negotiate with Netanyahu and try to come up with an, uh, an agreement um, that would be a satisfactory to both sides. But Netanyahu blew him off and, and the negotiations failed ultimately. Um, and so J Street pro-peace, there's no peace, no hope of peace right now. And pro-Israel, of course it's pro-Israel. Um, but what does it mean to be pro-Israel? What, what are you supporting? Are you supporting some liberal Zionist philosophical notion or are you supporting the Israeli government? Or do you think you're supporting only the left within Israel, which for all intents and purposes, the Zionist left doesn't exist in Israel. So what are you supporting? Uh, you know, like to me, it's a house of cards. Now, 
I would say J Street in some ways has some positive um, you know, approaches to things, but those approaches are ratified by the Democratic Party. So in, in other words, supporting uh, the Iran nuclear uh, deal, the Iran nuclear negotiations, JHC supports that. Great. So does the Democratic Party. So, uh, you know, the the whole idea that it's APAC light, I could buy into that now. Um, it's not as bad as APAC. It's not as toxic as APAC, but um, it's still liberal Zionists, not similar Zionists. And as I said, liberal Zionists can't exist anymore. There is no nothing liberal or I mean, there is, you could call it Zionist, but there's nothing liberal, there's nothing humane, there's nothing, uh, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no, the former left-wing socialist Israel that you talked about really died um, after 1967. There's no way to resume it. And by the way, Bibi Netanyahu, a, dis, a, a disciple of Milton Friedman, helped destroy the um, that social welfare state uh, when he was the finance minister 20 years ago or so. I feel as if what you're saying, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that, uh, you know, w- whatever kind of liberal Zionism there was, uh, you're saying, I feel that politically Israel has been so strangled by this virulent right wing that a liberal Zionism has been crushed by that and, and it's not making a comeback. Absolutely. And if you look at the parties that were once the ones that were social welfare, um, socialists, whatever, uh, the Labour Party, <clears throat> and there were other parties that had different names uh, that coexisted with the Labour Party, they're dead. I mean, the Labour Party has, what, five or six members um, it's gone through, you know, infinite permutations led by Ehud Barak, led by, you know, about 12 or 15 different party leaders over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. And each time uh, it goes to elections, it, it's more and more feeble. So, you know, Labor Party used to be a party with 30 or 40 seats, you know, 1967. 1970, um, now it's down to five or six. The, even the Zionist left Merits Party, um, which has existed in one form or another for you know uh, twenty or thirty years, um, it's down to five or six uh, seats as well. The only left-wing uh, sort of entity in Israel is the Joint List, and the Joint List is mostly Palestinians. There's um, you know Dov Hanan used to be in the Knesset; he is a Jewish, but um, the, and and there are Israeli Jews who who will vote for the Joint List. But they are mostly anti-Zionist, um, and 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 they're casting a protest vote because they feel that the Zionist left has abandoned what um, principles it should. And for example, the Zionist left supports every war that Israel fights. After maybe four weeks or five weeks of uh, decimating Gaza or invading Lebanon, the finally the merits will get up the 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 the, um, the gumption to uh, criticize the war. But they're gung ho about Israeli wars uh, from the beginning. So you know, for, for someone like me, um, who you know, I, I do support Israel its existence but only if it can exist as a truly democratic state in which religion is not the defining feature of society, whether it be Jewish or uh, Muslim. To me, there has to be a democratic state. There will be religion in that state, of course, 
um, because both uh, Jews and Muslims find that their religion is a key element of their identity. But right now, religion dominates the politics of, of these states. And uh, that's a, a toxic uh, situation that is bad uh, for both sides. So I think for a lot of Americans, um, a lot of Americans, I, I think, just have trouble looking at uh, Israel and Palestine. Uh, and, you know, they get caught up in the war games and, you know, uh, they'll say, oh, it's complicated. Or they'll see, you know, recently um, the prime minister, Naftali Bennett, was on CNN uh, with uh, Amon Poor, who was interviewing him and grilling him a little bit, actually. And uh, he, he was saying, oh, you know, I, I dispute this whole issue of settler violence, even though a general said it. You know, it's it's a very small number of, of people engaged in settler violence. Then he said something uh, very interesting to me. He said, uh, there is not occupied territory. It's disputed land. Uh, so I think when people hear these things, they get very confused and they don't know what the real facts are. So how would you lay out the Israel-Palestine issue uh, to someone who is uh, completely new to this? You know, say, say like my uh, apolitical mom or something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, calling it disputed territory is, 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 is a cute way of doing things because actually it's occupied territory under international law. Israel conquered it in 1967. Uh, if you are in a military conflict and you conquer land, you must return it. Um, not only has it conquered the land, but um, it's basically stolen most of uh, the fertile and best land in the West Bank and, and plopped settlements down there. So there are now 700,000 Israelis living on occupied land, Palestinian land that includes East Jerusalem. Um, um, you know, and so, um, you know, and that back when I was younger, 50, 10,000 Jews living in occupied Palestinian lands, 100,000 at one time. Um, and, you know, politicians like Ariel Sharon said, oh, we're going to boost it. We're going to have 250,000 settlers. We're going to, then it went 500,000. Now it's, you know, close to a million settlers. So, um, you know, there is, you know, we can now get into something a little different. Israel needs to dominate the messaging. It needs to, brand Israel needs to manipulate the media, manipulate the narrative in its own uh, favor. So it uses terms like disputed territory, as if there's some kind of equal balance between the Palestinian narrative and the Israeli narrative. There isn't. There's, you know, the, the the Israeli government, the left, the right wing Israeli government, and the settlers, of course, believe that there's a, well, they don't believe there's a dispute from for that from their side. Israel controls it. Israel should control it. That's the end of it. The Palestinians, they would at least say they are disputing that, um, but there's no dispute. <laughs> where, where is the dispute? Um, there's all sorts of, um, uh, what's the word? Um, locutions that they use to justify occupation. Um, and those are used to confuse people, like you mentioned. They want to make it seem like both sides have an equal claim and, and you know, what I call both sidesism. Um, but there is no both sides. The Palestinian side is right. They have a right to national rights. 
um, if Israel isn't willing to give it to them in their own state, it has to be a single democratic state in which Jews and, and Palestinians are living alongside each other from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean. Um, so I got a little lost here in the, uh, my conversation. So if I missed something in your last question, let me know. No, not at all. I was just uh, wanting you to comment more on, on the way this uh, sort of language is employed. And also the other thing uh, that I found interesting that Naftali Bennett said in that CNN interview, he said, um, you know, it's not the Israelis doing the killing. It's, it's Palestinians killing Israelis. And I, I was hoping that you could respond to that because I, I feel like, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, suffering and, and, and death of Palestinians in the news. So I don't know what Bennett is talking about. Well, uh, Israelis like to um, complain or, or I don't know what the word is, that um, they are the victims. And then they, uh, they invoke the Holocaust and they try to say that the Jews have been victims throughout their history and that the Palestinians want to uh, 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 um, do another Holocaust against, uh, against Israeli Jews. Um, and all of that is bogus. It, if you look at the statistics, facts, you'll find that for every Israeli who's been killed by a Palestinian in a terror attack or whatever, 20 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli security forces, one to 20. So when people, you know, I had somebody write me in my blog an Israeli and said, I want you to know that my cousin was murdered in Tel Aviv in the terror attack. Well. You know, we could talk about why she said that, um, but I think she wanted to put me on the line because I had written a blog post that basically said the Palestinians are engaged in militant acts of violence as resistance against Israeli terror. I think that Israeli Israel is a terror is a terrorist state, um, and the, the Palestinians have a right to resist, and I think that. Israelis murdering Palestinians, men and women, mostly women and children in Gaza last May and what they're doing now gives the Palestinians a right to resist, not just nonviolently. We've seen that when they resist nonviolently in the Great March of Return uh, in 2018, that they get mowed down by Israeli uh, snipers in their hundreds. So, you know, how can I... How can I say that a Palestinian who has no job, no hope, no future, who's seen his relatives killed by Israeli uh, bullets, that that person doesn't have a right in his desperation to take matters into his own hands? I'm sorry. I don't want anybody to be killed. I don't want Israelis to be killed. I don't want Palestinians to be killed. But until Israel gives the Palestinians what is rightfully theirs, the violence will continue and the killing will continue on both sides. However, because Israel has missiles and Apache helicopters and F-35 uh, jets, it's far more capable of killing far more Palestinians than the other way around. So I think we have to put things in perspective when we talk about um, you know, claims that Israeli civilians are murdered right and left. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to add to that. So, I mean, the, the way I would put it is, uh, I, I remember, um, I think it was in 08 or 09 when uh, rockets were shot into Gaza by Israel. 
you know, I think it was due to um, Hamas uh, killing, I think, two or three IDF soldiers. Uh, but the retaliation there killed uh, multitudes of civilians. So it, it was like an uneven response, even if you think what Hamas did was wrong. Right. Um, you know, uh, Palestinians uh, engage in these acts of, of violence or terrorism, and they kill, you know, for there were 11 Palestinians killed over a three week period. I'm sorry, 11 Israeli uh, Israeli civilians killed. Well, actually not. There were two Israelis who were border police and uh, the other nine were civilians killed over a three week period. But um, within a one week after that, 17 Palestinians had been killed. And so, you know, in 2014, when Israel invaded uh, Gaza, 2,500 Palestinians were killed and 150 Israelis died from Hamas rockets. In 2000, in a, a year ago, when Israel uh, attacked Gaza, um, 250 Palestinians were killed, mostly women and children. So, and and I don't know if there were any Israelis killed uh, during that attack uh, last year. So um, the the proportion there's no proportionality here that Israeli outrage at uh, you know civilians killed and wounded um, is here and Palestinian deaths are way up here. So um, we have to as outsiders, Israelis are going to feel the way they're going to feel about this. They're going to feel outrage and umbrage at these attacks. But as observers, even American Jews, I think, as observers, we need to stand back and look at the perspective and look at the facts and not be confused, like you mentioned, by, um, you know, the, this is a complicated issue and it's a conflict that, uh, you know, you need to have a lot of understanding and you need to have a lot of sympathy for the Israeli side in order to really understand what is going on. That's all, you know, I don't know if I can use strong language here, but uh, it's bull. So you had mentioned that that someone responded to you uh, a bit angrily at one of your your blog posts saying, well, I had a relative that was killed in, in an attack. Uh, just out of curiosity, how, how do you respond to someone uh, that, that says that? Because like what, one can sort of understand like, uh, you know, oh, my 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 brother was killed in this attack. Uh, how do you respond to someone that's coming at it from that angle? I say what I just said, said earlier, which is that I don't want anyone to die here. But as long as her government is engaged in terrorism and mass violence against Palestinians, in which tens of thousands of Palestinians have died since 1948, um, and, you know, and, and the number of Israelis who have died is, is minimal compared to that. And I'm not discounting the value of the, de of the lives of the Israelis who were killed, but I am saying the lives of the Palestinians who were killed are equally valuable. There's a, there's a saying in the, in the Talmud that you cannot, even if you are threatened with death and somebody says to you, I will kill you unless you kill him. You can't kill him. You have to accept that you will die. And then it says, is your blood redder than his or hers? And um, that's the same thing. We both have the same blood running through our veins. Just because that person is Palestinian doesn't mean that they're less human, doesn't mean that they have less rights. 
they're, we are both human. We both have equal rights. That's the problem with Israel. They don't accord the same rights that they have to the Palestinians. And until they do, that this is what's going to happen. So I didn't quite say it in that terms to her, but I did say to her, if you have a problem with Israelis being killed, I'm not the address. I didn't kill that person. Your your government indirectly killed that person, and that's a very a very disturbing thought for Israelis. It's a place they do not want to go, because they would rather blame someone else for their own predicament. And one of the goals that I have, one of my missions, is to say that the emperor has no clothes. Really, emperor has no clothes. I have to really say things that are very troubling that will induce a lot of anger among Israelis. And um, I get that a lot from Israelis, from commenters, um, you know, death threats and all that other stuff that come with the territory. Um, but you have to say that to them. Uh, you, you must. You must be honest and truthful. So I, I want to talk about Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, because I may have listeners that um, I've heard about the news of this in passing, but they don't know what it actually is. They don't know about the Temple Mount. But uh, more broadly, there's something you had mentioned uh, that, that we could talk about um, when, when we were emailing back and forth. You were saying the role of religion in, in the conflict. And it, it's interesting to use the word conflict because I know I have quite a few Palestinian friends that will say, how can you even call it a conflict? We don't have any, you know, it's so lopsided. Uh, but talk, talk about the role of religion in all of this. This is a really, really complicated issue. Uh, I don't want to take too much time here to go into it. But um, so, you know, I talked about Israel being a Jewish and democratic state. Um, in the past, you know, going way back in the past, Israel was a secular state. Um, religion played some role, but, you know, there was a there was a small religious party over the decades uh, in Israel. But in 1967, all of that changed. The so, chief so the original, just, uh, not to interrupt you, but the like maybe the labors or the, the, the socialist Zionists were probably more secular. Yeah, not just more secular. They were totally secular. They were atheists, most of them. Uh, um, they, they rejected religion. They didn't want to have anything to do with Judaism as a religion. That was their rebellion against the diaspora. Their rebellion against the European Holocaust was the, the this, this is their narrative, not mine. They went like like uh, sheep to the slaughter, and um, you know that's because they were. Um, the, the Jewish religion taught them to be obedient and to, to authority, and it was the religion that was the cause of the Holocaust or the cause of lack of resistance. Of course, this is a totally bogus narrative. That's a whole other story to get into. But religion, after 1967, all of that changed. Um, and it changed because the chief rabbi of Israel, Avram, uh, um, uh, Rabbi Cook. Abraham Cook, I think his name was, um, he said that the Israeli conquest of the West Bank and the sacred sites in the West Bank, which are biblical sites, was the beginning of the Messianic redemption. That, this is Abraham Isaac Cook. Right, Abraham Yitzhak Cook. Um, and a very, very powerful figure in, in Orthodox Judaism, uh, especially not just in an Israeli context, but um, but, you know, that was where his base was. Um, so he started saying that 
the uh, Israeli conquest was the beginning of the messianic redemption. And the way to continue to bring that redemption to fruition was to have Jewish settlements. Jews needed to go back to these biblical sites in the West Bank, Hebron, uh, um, uh, Tekoa, you know, all these sites mentioned in the Bible and populate them with settlements. Now, in the beginning, Palestinians were, you know, they didn't realize what was happening. There wasn't a lot of opposition. They, and, and it's sort of like when the first pioneers came to Israel in the early uh, 20th century. Um, the Palestinians, a lot of Palestinian Arabs, either they didn't welcome the Jews, but they did business with them and they coexisted with them for a while. Um, the same thing sort of happened in 1967, but it gradually increased more and more settlements, more and more Israeli Jews uh, crossing the border, the green line uh, into these settlements. And um, religion went from being a minority um, with very minimal levels of power and being a sort of a contained minority within the political system to taking it over. And then by 1977, it was in the ascendancy when the Likud took over and the Likud, uh, even though it was uh, at first a non-religious party, it quickly embraced the settlers and saw this as its uh, path to power. And uh, that has been exacerbated more and more. And basically religion has now taken over the state. On the Palestinian side, it started with the PLO. The PLO was also a secular democratic movement. Um, it, it wanted a secular democratic state and it supported two states. Hamas uh, came, uh, arose, I can't remember what year it was, and maybe in the 70s or 80s. Um, it was the first Islamist movement, um, maybe not in the whole Middle East, but it was a very, very important development among Palestinians. And it basically said, we're going to fuse politics with religion. And there was a, a, a parallel development in Israel itself. And I'm not saying that Hamas, obviously, many people have lots of criticisms of Hamas, but I don't think Hamas is nearly as toxic within the Palestinian context as the settler movement has become within the Israeli Would context. you say that, I think there is this tendency that goes on beneath the surface of, I think there's people that use Hamas as shorthand to say, well, Hamas is just Palestine. That That is what Palestine is. They're, they're just Hamas. I think you're saying, no, that's not the case. You know, Hamas, uh, Palestine is not just, uh, you know, Hamas, right? Well, in the Al-Aqsa uh, riots or violence that's going on right now, the Israeli say Hamas is directing all of the Palestinians who are rioting um, and engaging in uh, violence uh, in Al-Aqsa. Hamas is not directing that. That's an uprooting. That's an upsurge of Palestinian anger at the border police who are defiling Al-Aqsa. It's a, it's a Palestinian response. It's not a Hamas response. The only thing that's a Hamas response is if it fires rockets because it sees itself as a protector of the Muslim holy sites. And last year it did fire rockets because uh, the border police were um, 
not just the border police beating up Muslim worshipers, but there were riots and pogroms throughout Israel by Jews against Palestinians. So Hamas did take responsibility for firing its own rockets, but it didn't control what happened in East Jerusalem or what happened at Haram al-Sharif. Um, in fact, uh, the PLO or the Palestinian Authority controls the West Bank, and a lot of this anger and resentment is coming from the West Bank. The, the, the Palestinians living in Gaza can't make pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem and, um, and go to Jerusalem as Hamas operatives. Um, it's a total misnomer, and it, and it reduces the Palestinians to a nice, convenient terror uh, image. You know, we know Hamas is, these are Hamas are terrorists that so many countries have designated Hamas as a terrorist entity. And therefore, if Hamas dominates the Al-Aqsa, we can dismiss it as the active Palestinian terrorists. Well, no, you can't do that because um, Palestinians, as I said, have a right as a people to national rights, political rights, um, and and to try to dismiss or to narrowly define um, the Palestinians as all being Hamas. It's sort of like saying um, that, um, well, anyway, I don't want to go there. I was going to- Well, what, what, what I was going to say was, yeah. you know, to me, it comes down to, re regardless of what you think of Hamas, there are people that think they may do bad things, but there needs to be resistance. There's other people who will say they're just, they're a terrorist organization. They're in the Gaza Strip. They don't represent everyone in East Jerusalem. They don't represent every uh, Palestinian in the West Bank. So you can't just make this conflation that Hamas and Palestinian are the same thing. That's all I was trying to get at. Right. And, and who controls the West Bank? Not Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, which comes out of the PLO, that, that formerly secular uh, democratic entity that I was talking about. So Hamas controls Gaza, the Palestinian. PA controls the West Bank. Those are not the same thing. Um, and, and we can talk about the PA and how corrupt they are and, and whatever, but the fact is that the PA controls the West Bank. Now, there are Palestinians in the West Bank who reject the PA and say, and say that they're corrupt and they, you know, and they're not democratic. And that's why there's a lot of Palestinian violence and the terror attacks um, that happened in Israel over the last month came from these disgruntled Palestinians who felt that the PA no longer represented them, no longer supported the Palestinian struggle. So there's a there's a very uh, complex and, and interesting uh, development among Palestinians. It's not all a, a uniform monolithic situation. I, I would argue that Israel is much more monolithic uh, than the Palestinians. Because, as I said, Israel is really, even though there are Israelis who are secular, they vote for the parties that um, institute these religious theocratic uh, policies, uh, ultra-nationalistic policies. Now, I want to talk about, I, I know we're 40 minutes in and we haven't talked enough about it, but uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. If, if I have someone that has only heard that in the news, what is the significant of, significance of Al-Aqsa mosque, um, its relationship to the Temple Mount, and um, what has happened there since, I believe, uh, Friday the 22nd is when things started to really um, heat up again. Right. Well, uh, to go back, um, first of all, Ramadan, uh, which is happening right now, 
the holy month of Ramadan for Muslims is uh, a real flashpoint for Palestinians because they are making a pilgrimage to to Haram al-Sharif, their noble sanctuary, it's called in uh, Islam. Um, and the Jews call it the Temple Mount. So I'm not going to use that terminology. But um, so they go and they make a pilgrimage. Um, but Israel usually restricts the pilgrimage in, in, in key ways and incites um, resistance and anger uh, among the Palestinian, uh, among the Muslim worshipers. Last year, uh, before Israel attacked Gaza, as I mentioned, the border police prevented uh, Palestinians from accessing uh, the main gate in Jerusalem through which the Palestinians would go to the mosque, Al-Aqsa, is through the Damascus Gate, and they prevented people from doing so. And that's what started the riots. And that's what led to the pogroms throughout Israel against Palestinians. And that's in turn what led to Hamas firing rockets in Israel in defense of uh, the holy site. And that's what led to Israel um, decimating Gaza in that 11-day war that happened. So this year, same thing. It's like Groundhog Day all over again with bullets and, and missiles. Um, Israel, again, um, it's it's bringing, for example, 750 settlers to the courtyard of Al-Aqsa Mosque. Those settlers want to make a pilgrimage of their own to the site of the um, Holy Temple, which exists the same site as the current noble sanctuary. So where there is the Al-Aqsa Mosque used to be the, um, the Jewish temple, but the Jewish temple hasn't existed as a building for 2000 years. And when it did exist, it only existed for several hundred years, maybe up to a thousand, maybe. Um, so Jews is that why had, you won't, is that why you won't use, you said you won't call it the Temple Mount? Is that what? Right, because calling it the Temple Mount gives some credibility to the claim that we need to rebuild the temple. Not for me. I don't want to rebuild the temple. I don't want animal sacrifices. I don't need them. Um, and it also means you have to destroy the uh, Muslim holy sites. You, you, you may recall in India, when Indian Hindus destroyed a sacred uh, Muslim uh, mosque, they basically just tore it apart piece by piece. Well, that's basically what the settlers want to do. And, you know, Israelis will say, oh, the settlers, they're extremists, blah, blah, blah. Hey, Look what happened, 1922, Hitler did the beer hall putsch in Munich. It was ridiculous. He, everybody was put in jail. That's where he write, wrote Mein Kampf in prison. But, but, but 10 years later, what happened? He was a, the most powerful political party in Germany and became the chancellor, I think, in 1933. So I'm not saying that this definitely will happen in Israel, but I'm saying that history gives us examples of something, they're a kernel of some development that like wildflower turns into something far, far worse and takes over societies. And I think that that is possible in Israeli society. It's in a very, very dangerous place. Um, I would say it has become a fascist state, a terror state and an apartheid state. And so now let's go back to Al-Aqsa. We have the 750 settlers they want to go there because on Passover, you make a pilgrimage to the Holy Temple in ancient times, not today. In fact, most Orthodox Jews, out of an abundance of caution, will not 
will not step foot on the Temple Mount or because the claim is a that it's a holy site. People, human beings, Jews are not allowed to walk on something where there might have been uh, a holy of holies or some kind of sacred object uh, in in the temple, or there might be dead Jews that might be buried there um, in past uh, uh, fighting at that location during the Roman times or whatever. So Orthodox Jews won't go there, except these settlers who will go there. And so in order to in order to safely allow the settlers to invade the Muslims' holy site, there are Muslims inside Al-Aqsa Mosque who are praying for Ramadan. When the worshipers inside Al-Aqsa see the temple, they see these invaders coming who they know want to rebuild this temple. It's not a good place for them uh, to be. So what happens is the border police go in, they wade into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they break the doors down, they fire stun grenades, they fire tear gas, they, you know, wail with their, their batons on the, um, the Muslim worshippers, who respond by throwing rocks and, and whatever. And so it, Israel can label that as a riot, as civil unrest. The police are going in to restore order. Well, no, the police are there to maintain Israeli Jewish dominance of the site. Even though the site is supposed to be divided into Jewish control of the Kotel, the Western Wall down below, and Muslims uh, control, there's a, an entity, a Jordanian Waqf, uh, W-A-Q-F, that's supposed to control uh, the Muslim site, which is above the Kotel. But the Waqf, well, the Waqf has very little power. Uh, whenever Israel wants to invade um, the Muslim holy sites, it just does so. So now we have this new development yesterday, which is very critical. Uh, one of the, I call them the Muslim defenders of Al-Aqsa, uh, was mortally wounded by an Israeli uh, rubber bullet, and he's probably going to die today or, or soon. And this will immeasurably, immeasurably ratchet the, up the tensions among Palestinians. Now they will have a martyr. And um, Israel will have to respond in kind. And this is exactly the sort of escalation that leads to war. I was um, just going to say, could this lead to a full-scale war? Absolutely. It depends on how Hamas responds. So far, um, Hamas is using Egypt as its interlocutor with the Israelis and the Egyptians, even though they're led by this bloodthirsty junta general, uh, al-Sisi, he has um, negotiated with Hamas, which supposedly is restraining itself. So far it has, uh, only a couple of rockets have, have been launched from Gaza, mostly not by uh, Hamas. Um, but now a Palestinian is dead, all bets are off. All bets are off. Uh, doesn't mean that for sure Hamas will unleash um, the full power of its tens of thousands of rockets and missiles, but uh, it's much more likely. And then if that happens, Israel will retaliate. It will either invade Gaza or it will set its air force, its uh, F-35s and its Apache helicopters on, uh, on Gaza. And uh, if you, your, your viewers or your uh, listeners may remember last uh, May, um, Israel uh, toppled a 12-story residential tower. And that became sort of the symbol of Israeli violence. And it eventually led Joe Biden to make a statement which 
gave Israel pause and it and it, and it agreed to a ceasefire. Um, right now, the U.S. has sent um, top senior de- de- um, State Department figures to Israel and to Palestine to try to calm tensions before things get out of hand. But U.S. policy is toothless. It doesn't respond to facts on the ground. Um, And we can get into a whole analysis of the failure of U.S. policy. But basically, um, they're kind of like a school mom, you know, telling the students to, you know, stop throwing erasers um, when actually the students have (laughs) F-35 planes and they're, you know, shooting missiles at each other. So, um, you know, at least this time, Biden is trying to be proactive. Um, I don't think it'll be much more effective, but at least he's trying before the the murders uh, happen to do something. Now, in your latest uh, blog or or commentary, uh, you talk about um, the settlers in Al-Aqsa Mosque, and you also talk about a um, Israeli publication that sort of uh, dismisses the seriousness of these threats, as you put it. Um, and this publication goes on to say, you know, uh, despite what mainstream Arab media and, and Palestinian social media is saying, the Israeli government has no secret plans to push Muslims off the Temple Mount and turn it into a site of Jewish worship, and then et cetera, et cetera. The government hasn't ordered the police's special forces to draw up an operation to oust Muslims from the Mount, nor is it ordered settlers to sacrifice goats at Al-Aswa on Passover. And uh, you responded as pretty, um, you know, you say this is nonsense. Uh, could, could you respond? What was your response to reading that? Well, first of all, that's a journalist named Nir Hassan uh, writing in Haaretz, which is the leading Israeli daily uh, liberal Zionist oriented uh, newspaper. Perhaps you say most the most left of Israeli media, but that's not saying much because most Israeli media is right to far right. But anyway, um, Nir Hasson said that um, everybody's making a mountain out of a molehill here, that Israel doesn't want to do the things that the Palestinians are claiming, that they don't want to eradicate their mosques and they don't want to, as a state, uh, build a temple. And I say it doesn't matter whether there's a plan or not. He's saying there's no plan to do this. It doesn't matter whether the state has actually instituted a policy or created a law to do it. The facts on the ground govern things. And the facts are saying that Israeli Jews are going to the Temple Mount, if you want to call it the Jew, the Israeli term. They are going there to pray. 35 in, in his own article. He admits that 35,000 Israeli Jews have gone to the Haram al-Sharif in the past year. And he admits that there were almost none in 67 that would do something like that. And now we're at 35,000. Why does he think they're going there? To have tea? <laughs> you know, to, to um, celebrate uh, birthday parties? They're going there because they know this is the site that they where they want to rebuild the temple. They may know that they don't yet have the majority of Israelis on their side to do that, but that's their goal. And look, their goal in 1967 was to settle the West Bank and settle all the holy sites. Guess what? They succeeded. They've done that. And you and I may say, that's crazy. They're never going to build the temple. I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. Do you? I can't say. 
um, what's going to happen to Israeli politics in 10 years. If you had asked me in 1967, could we get to this point? If you'd asked all of us, uh, you know, before six years ago about Donald Trump, could you imagine that he's going to be elected president? Guess what? He was. Um, could German, uh, Germans have imagined in 1922 that within 10 years they're going to be uh, they're going to be uh, governed by a Nazi government? No, I don't think so. So to to, to have this sort of um, Pollyannish kind of view that he has in this article, don't worry, there's no policy. Don't get so excited. We have to focus on just the one thing before us: the occupation, ending the occupation. Well. There's no longer any such thing as an occupation. Palestinians are occupied within Israel proper. They're occupied in the West Bank. It's it's a, an apartheid state from, you know, the, the river to the sea. So um, I don't buy that at all. Um, and I think that, uh, and I wanted to go back to one other thing, and that is um, for Israel to say we need to send our border police in to restore order uh, because they're throwing rocks at us, the Palestinians, and um, we need to, you know, this is civil unrest, these are rioters. No, the Israelis don't have a right to be on uh, Haram al-Sharif. They don't control it. The agreements gave uh, the uh, Israeli Jews the control of the Kotel and the Palestinian Muslims control of the of the uh, of the uh, of the noble sanctuary. So the fact that the border police are going in their thousands into these places and provoking the violence, that is a complete uh, violation of not only the agreement, but it's basically an expression. These border police are acting in the name of the state of Israel. So you cannot tell me that there is no policy to do these extreme things. There is. And the policy is determined by the actions on the ground of people and the Israeli state is trying to dominate and control what is supposed to be a Muslim holy site. You had mentioned earlier Biden's response to Israel, and you had sort of uh, brought up uh, U.S. policy towards Israel. Uh, why has it failed, as you put it, for you know, in our email, as you said, over fifty years? Yeah, I mean, if you go back to 1967, 1970, there have been peace plans uh, proposed by U.S. secretaries of state uh, all the way back to that period. So that's over 50 years. Um, Obama tried and failed. Um, almost every presidential administration has tried, except Biden, who was smart enough to know that it's a, uh, a dead end uh, because he was the vice president in an administration that tried and failed. So he's not going to make that same mistake. Um, but U.S. policy um, has, since um, since the Oslo Accords, has basically targeted a two-state solution. And there were supposed to be Israeli Israel was supposed to stop settlements, and eventually Israel was supposed to return territory, more or less according to pre-67 borders. Um, that was that was the predicate of U.S. policy on which it was based, and over time, it sort of contracted the U.S. policy contracted to opposing Israeli settlements. Uh, not, not, you know, they may have tried to create a compromise. Uh, you know, uh, there was uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, going back to George Bush, there was the Madrid conference. In 1970, under Nixon, there was the Rogers Plan. Um, you know, you can find all these things sprinkled over um, the um, 
the coffin of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so, uh, by so, what the U.S. now is doing when it talks about, and this is what Kushner did during the Trump administration, he said, "Let's take politics out of the conflict. Let's say we want to only do the things that both sides." are capable of doing. And what are those two things? Security and economics. So we're going to eliminate all the other issues, political issues, control, resources. We're going to eliminate all that. The only two things we care about are security, because we're going to give Israel security. The Palestinians are going to cooperate with Israel to reduce violence in Israel. The Israelis are not going to give the Palestinians anything related to their security. Um, it's a one-way street. And economics. In return, we're going to give the Palestinians, we're going to give them a few work permits so that they come and work in Israel. We're going to open up a couple of broader crossings so more uh, goods can enter Gaza. We're going to make the life of Palestinians better. You know, We're going to let them buy a few more things. We're going to let them earn a little bit more money. This policy, which is not just the Trump policy, but it's the policy even of democratic administrations is a failure because politics and control and power is at the heart of the conflict. You cannot extricate those things and say, oh, we're going to relate to, we're going to really fix things by focusing on those two other things. It's like a, an ostrich burying its head in the sand without dealing with the issue of Palestinian rights, the violence continues, the US policy continues to be completely irrelevant to what's going on. Um, and it's it's a failure. It's 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 weak need, it's like it's like milk tea um, in terms of what's really going on on the ground. And the reason is is simple that the US doesn't want to exercise its power enforcing the Israeli governments to do things that they don't want to do. So we're not willing to cut off military aid. Uh, we're not willing to impose sanctions on Israel. We're not willing to do all the things we do against Iran uh, or we're considering doing it or we have done against Russia. We are captive to Israel. And that's because we have the Israel lobby uh, basically controlling every issue related to um, Israel within Congress. And note, I do not say that APAC or the Israel lobby controls the US, controls US policy. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that it controls every issue that matters to Israel inside domestically, uh, inside the Congress. Um, so um, that's why our policy is emasculated uh, when it comes to Israel, we cannot force, we are not, no president is willing to uh, go outside of their comfort zone in trying to force Israel to accept a, an outcome that it, uh, that it is rejecting. And so Israel has become a rejectionist state. It's not the Palestinians who, re who reject. The, Israel is saying there's no, there's no address, there's no partner for peace. That's crap. The Palestinians, if you look at any Palestinian opinion poll, they're more than happy, more than willing to accept a two-state solution, which I think is completely out of date, but that's they are much more uh, flexible than um, Israel, the Israeli population, certainly than the Israeli government. So, um, you know, that's, yeah. 
So just wrapping up here, um, really early on in this conversation, I had, and I felt like I did this rudely, but I, it just popped into my head and I had to speak it out, was uh, you were talking about Kahana. And I said, yeah, didn't he, didn't he also believe that there were no um, Palestinians, that you just would call them Arabs? But right before I, I blurted that out and you responded to that, you were going to articulate what Kahana's vision was. And I, I don't know what it was from the river to the, I don't know what you were going to say, but what was Kahana's vision? What, what is the vision of, of these people that want the, the, the Temple Mount uh, rebuilt? Is, like, what is the end game for the most extreme elements? Well, what they want is they want to return to uh, what you call Judea when it was uh, at its heyday in the time of King David. Um, they want to see Israel as a, a powerful Jewish state controlled by Jews, by, for, and of Jews. They want only Jews to be in this state. They want to expel anyone who's not Jewish. Um, and they want to restore um, both a, a, a Davidic monarchy going back to the time of King David, and they want to impose uh, ancient Jewish law on the state. Um, and they want to, if you ask them, if you scratch a little bit beneath the surface, Kahana had no place, no, no uh, place in his vision for even secular Jews. Secular Jews are trafe. They don't believe in, they, they don't believe in God, or at least not the God of Orthodox Jews. Um, and Kahana was happy to use violence. He used violence uh, during the Soviet Jewry movement when he planted a bomb, um, I think, in the Russian consulate in New York City. So he believed in using violence to impose Jewish will on any entity within Israel that, that, uh, that, that opposed this vision being implemented. And mostly that meant uh, Palestinians. They had to go. Uh, now, a million Palestinians were already expelled from Israel in 1948 in a policy of uh, ethnic cleansing. He wanted to continue that uh, on steroids by eliminating all Palestinians. So there are now, I think, um, uh, over a million Palestinians inside Israel. They would have to go. Um, and, um, and, Jew and Israel would become, I mean, it already is, I would say, a garrison state. But um, in a perpetual state in perpetual war um, with its neighbors, but um, he would he wanted to go back to the time when Israelites were warriors, when they conquered uh, uh, Canaan, you know, and 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 turned it into um, uh, the land of Israel. Um, he wants to go back to this ancient time, this sort of vision of this ancient era, and why? What's his ultimate goal? His ultimate goal is a religious vision of the Messiah coming. They want to restore, they want to bring the Messiah to sort of create some kind of, um, it's hard for me because I'm a, more or less a secular Jew. It's hard for me to even imagine this, but this end time scenario of the Messiah coming and making everything right in the world, which basically for them means, you know, Israeli dominance. Um, and they, they believe this messianic era will um, create some mythical time when everything 
turns, you know, or is right when there's an end of violence. But it basically, it means that Jews will control all of the territory that the ancient kingdom of Israel under King David control uh, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. And even earlier in the state of Israel, there was a vision that they wanted Israel to control Southern Lebanon um, and, and other areas. It was a maximalist territorial vision. And that's kind of what they want the uh, Messianic era to be. So I, I just want to clarify here because I have a lot of non-Jewish listeners. You're, you're yeah. talking specifically about Kahana's vision. This isn't representative of, of course, all of, of Judaism. And in fact, there's a lot of debate and interpretation to be had. I, I would say, though, um, I, would, I would put a caveat on that. Um, yeah, it's Kahana's vision, but Kahana's vision controls Israeli politics. So I'm not saying that today the Israeli government is going to order a million Palestinian, Israeli Palestinians uh, and expel them like it did in 1948. Uh, what I'm saying is that the unspoken vision of most of the key powerful political leaders of Israel is for that to happen. And they let sl slip here and there statements that indicate that that's what they want to happen. Um, and th that's the problem with uh, uh, sort of analyzing what's going on in Israel. You have to look beneath the surface of the statements of the political leaders because a lot of it's currying favor in the West, saying things that uh, they know Biden wants to hear or they know that the EU wants to hear. But you have to understand what's beneath the surface. And beneath the surface is roiling this this maximalist um, Judaic, Judean kind of desire for power and control and hatred of Palestinians and feeling that they need to be uh, gone from Israel. And they have certain kind of phrases that they use to say it, but not say it explicitly. Um, and that's actually uh, why I would encourage some of your listeners to read my blog, because one of the things I do is to analyze the real meaning of the statements. Um, uh, for example, just as a, a local example and a, and a minor example, but uh, an interesting one, um, the Palestinian who was mortally wounded that I mentioned earlier, um, the border police say that he fell and hit his head. Um, but the witnesses who were there say he was, he was mortally wounded by a bullet. And he went to the, he was taken to Hadassah Hospital, and the Hadassah made a statement. There is no evidence that he was injured by live ammunition. Well, what does that mean? If you didn't know, you would say Hadassah. The doctors at Hadassah medically are saying that the police border police are right. Well, that's not what they're saying. Live ammunition means bullets fired from a gun that are intended to kill people. Rubber bullets, which were the ones fired, uh, which hit his head, are considered uh, crowd control, non-lethal. They are not considered live ammunition. So what Hadassah is doing on behalf of the border police is they're saying something that is only half true. And they're hoping that people like you and me and all of the diaspora, where, uh, where they don't want bad press, that they can voice that kind of uh, half lie and half truth on everyone. But 
if you know, like I do, that there's a distinction between the way Israel uh, uses its weapons on Palestinians, you know that the Hadassah was saying something that had no meaning, and they were trying to cover up what the border police did, and you know that the border police have engaged in a lie. That is what Israel is based on. Israel, unfortunately, is based on a lie. Almost everything that you will hear from a security spokesperson that has to do with violence against Palestinian is a tissue of lies. Um, and you have to pull it with, with a fine tooth comb. You have to sort of pull things apart before you get down and you find out what the truth is. It's a very hard thing to do. Um, but, um, and that's why, you know, Israel benefits from this, like, it's so complicated. Well, Israel's going to make it more complicated. It's going to try to hide things that it does or lie about things that it does. And that's unfortunately the way it goes. So, so I got to ask you this too, because I know that there's going to be some troll that's listening that's saying, oh, all this talk that he's spewing, it, it just sounds like he, he believes there's this, uh, elders of Zion conspiracy or he's, uh, anti-Judaism. How do you respond to the people who make those accusations? And I, you know, I've dealt with, uh, you know, people who who immediately yell anti-Semitism if you have any criticism of Israel. And it's very, I mean, for me, it's hurtful because I, I'm from Pittsburgh. I saw what happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue. I, right. I care very much about uh, Jewish people in, in my community. And, uh, you know, I anti-Semitism does bother me and it, it worries me. So how do you respond to the accusations of, oh, you're, sounds like you're uh, pushing an anti-Semitic conspiracy or you're anti-Judaism. And then I'll, I'll let you go after you answer that question, uh, but humor me if you can. Sure. Well, look, um, first thing, uh, I'm Jewish and um, I'm, I'm a well-educated Jew um, who studied in college. I have a bachelor's degree from a Jewish theological seminary. I spent two separate years studying Jewish studies at the Hebrew University. I'm fluent in Hebrew, um, you know, belong to a synagogue, you know, I'm establishing my uh, bona fides here. Um, and uh, Judaism is, is, is a key element of my identity. And I understand that for Jews around the world, Israel is a key element of their identity. That doesn't mean I can't criticize Israel. As a Jew, it's important to criticize Israel. If you I want to talk about the Bible. You want to talk about biblical prophets. There was no end of criticism of Jewish kings and of, uh, of those who controlled the temple. Um, they they criticized and attacked the political leaders mercilessly when they thought they went uh, off kilter or in the wrong direction. So what I do is I'm not a biblical prophet, obviously, but um, I, I feel like I'm in that tradition. Um, it's a very important for me as a Jew to express my own vision of what Judaism is and should be. Israel should, it, Judaism is not, Israel is not a religion. It's a nation state. It's a political entity. Yes, there are Jews that live in Israel. There are Muslims as well. Judaism is not a state. Judaism is a religion. My Judaism is based on ethical values and based on ideas. It is not based on uh, property or land or um, ancient Hebrew um, biblical settlements. I don't worship land. I worship ideas, I worship values. So um, I believe that the Judaism 
in, in quotes, of the settlers and of much of Israel is pagan idolatry. Why? Because they are worshiping a piece of land. They are worshiping a building that doesn't even exist anymore. They are worshiping pieces of land in the West Bank where a prophet may have stood, you know, 2,000 years ago. To me, what's important are the people who are alive right now. They need to figure out a way that they can live together in peace and security. And if I have to criticize and attack Israeli Jews who are using religion as a shield for their political aims, uh, the exploiting religion for their political aims, that is what I'm going to do. I'm not anti-Israel, not anti-Semitic, um, no matter what critics will say. That is a feeble, um, a feeble attempt and a feeble misunderstanding of everything that I am doing in, in my blog and in the journalism that I uh, publish. And you're also not saying, the, the other thing I mentioned was, I guess you're not saying it's conspiracy either. Uh, you mean like the elders of Zion? No, no. Yeah, I, I, because I had mentioned, you know, people will jump on that and say, oh, it sounds like you're talking about the elders of Zion. How do, how do you respond to people that throw out the, you're being a conspiracy theorist accusation or talking about the elders of Zion? Well, look, I believe in talking about facts and evidence and credible sources. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I don't believe that Jews control the banks and Jews control, you know, the Rothschilds have space lasers that uh, started the California wildfires like Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's all crap, you know? Um, and, and to say that, um, you know, that I wouldn't even say that Israel, you know, there's all sorts of people that say uh, members of Congress are Israeli citizens. That's all crap, you know? Um, things are bad enough in Israel without making things up, without layering conspiracy theories and talking about Israelis dancing during nine, after 9-11 and all that, that stuff. Um, deal with facts, deal with historical evidence, deal with credible sources, analyze things the way they are, not the way, um, you know, in some wild conspiracy. So um, to say, for example, that Israel controls uh, Hollywood or Israel controls U.S. society. That's all. That's all sort of like that's as bad as the messianic vision of the settlers in a way, um, because they're all. It's all based on wild-eyed sort of notions of that have no bearing in in reality. And I'm talking about something much different. Well, I want to thank you again, Richard Silverstein, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my followers? Uh, keep up with your work and any uh, parting words. Uh, I always like to end on a positive note. Any hope? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when we read in, in the synagogue on, on, on Saturday, um, we, we read a portion from the, the prophets, and we always like to read from a portion that ends on a positive note. And there is even one portion from the Bible that they read that does end on a negative note and they've taken a positive verse and they append it at the end because they always have to end on a positive note. Um, here's my positive note. The only solution to this conflict is a singular, a single democratic state that includes Israelis and Palestinians that gives them full equal rights and where um, and we have other examples of this in the world where there are different religious groups in the same society who have fought and, and killed each other for ages and ages, and they eventually come to a political understanding. And that's what needs to happen here. 
And I believe that the only way it will happen is if there is intervention. There needs to be foreign intervention um, by, you know, UN, NATO, EU, I don't know what, um, that after there is maybe enough bloodshed that people come to their senses. But that is the only way that this outcome will happen. But if there is political equality, the violence will end and both parties, the Palestinians and the Israelis, will be able to live together, you know, for the long time foreseeable future. And in terms of how to <clears throat> access my work, I have a blog called Tikkun Olam, and the URL is my name, richardsilverstein.com, and I do publish um, at Al Jazeera English, The New Arab, and uh, Middle East Eye, and Jacobin Magazine. So those are places where you can find my work. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Richard Silverstein. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I'm starting to post some early release programs. So if you want to hear some shows before they are more generally available on the main feed, patreon.com slash parallaxviews is the place to go. $5 tier and above gets that. There's also the $1 tier, $10 tier, $15 tier, and $100 tier. Any amount will help. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.